Takers at. Eight, yes, number eight. <coughs> okay, Bismillah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Nawayn al-ta'alamu wa al-ta'alimu wa tathakur wa al-tathkir wa naf'a wa al-intifa'a wa al-ifadata wa al-istifada wa al-hatha'a al-tamasuki bi kitabillahi wa sunnati wa sunnihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa dua'i ila al-huda wa al-dalalata ala al-khayr bitigha'a mardatillahi wa wajihihi wa qurbihi wa thawabi. اللهم افتح علينا بحكمتك وانشر علينا برحمتك يا ذا الجلال والإكرام يا عليم علمنا من علمك ما ترضى به عنا ولا تؤاخذنا بما تعلمه منا يا حليم خلقنا بقنق الحلم وحققنا بحقائق العلم سبحانك لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسل لي أمري وحل العقدة من لسان يلقه قولي بسم الله Hey Suri, how you doing buddy? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Bismillah. Alright, so we're in the eighth session on this book of Futuwa of uh, Dr. Rajab Center, Hafidhullah. And we had read number 13 last time and we said that we would come back to it. So I'm going to read it in its entirety again and then we'll uh, have some comments on it inshallah. Bismillah. It says, be patient in your relationships with others and endure their mistreatment. Be patient in your relationships with others and endure their mistreatment. Uh, as we always say, hard cases make, anyone can finish it, hard cases make what? Bad law. Hard cases make bad law. Okay? So anytime you have a general rule, Always know that, and I don't know if I should say always, but know that it's very common for there to be exceptions to that general rule. And those would be those hard cases. And those hard cases make bad law. So you have the law, like the principle, and then there's cases that might be different than the principle. Okay? So he's going to, and he'll mention that, right? So normally when people hear something like, be patient in your relationships with others and endure their mistreatment, then their mind immediately goes to abuse. He'll talk about that here, okay? So we'll be clear on that. He says, patience and endurance are necessary for healthy relationships. Being patient in our relationships with others and enduring their mistreatment is extremely important for the continuation of relationships unless the wrong behavior leads to sin. Unless the wrong behavior leads to sin. So automatically by his description, oppression is taken out, right? And abuse is taken out because abuse is a sin person who abuses someone else is engaging in some sort of sinful behavior and so he's not calling us to be patient in that kind of thing thank you 
Uh, as it is stated in the proverb, those who look for a perfect friend remain without friends. We should realistically accept that all our friends will have flaws and enter into a relationship with them accordingly. If we accept this in the first place, we should be ready to endure their faults and mistakes. This is called mudara. Mudara entails enduring mistreatment and waiting for the right time to correct it. It prevents many conflicts, fights, and divisions. However, tolerance has a limit. It should not turn into unlawful partnership. If the wrong behavior causes harm, it would not be right to tolerate it. In such cases, it is necessary to work hard to dissuade friends from that wrong behavior and to prevent them from harming other people. Okay? So I think actually his commentary is quite balanced. You know, it tells us the limitations of what we need to be aware of. But uh, perhaps there's something else to be said here on this issue that he's bringing up. And uh, it's important for us always to um, be, be conscious of our circumstances and our context. So our context is what I like to refer to as the Amazon culture. Okay, What is the Amazon culture? Amazon culture is I decide I want something. So I look for it on Amazon. When I look for it on Amazon, I find five to 12 options for that thing that I want. And all of those five to 12 options, I have many reviews. So I look at my five to 12 options, I read all the reviews, I choose, I balance between the reviews and which ones are gonna come by tomorrow. And then I choose the one that I want, right? And when the one that I want comes, I know that I have free returns if I don't like it. So this is the culture. <laughs> this is the culture of interaction that people are accustomed to. Uh, you know, it's not like in the past. Even imagine, Subhanallah. No, we should recognize that things in life are connected to each other. Okay. So in the past, say we wanted to. Uh, people talk about this. Like they want to get some clothes for Eid. All right. My wife would say this when they're growing up. You want to get some clothes for Eid. There's no options. You just you have to go to Anaheim to Eleanor. By the time there's like a date has to be set, you choose the time you're going to go. Everyone gets in the car. You make the trip up to Orange County. You go to the store. You get to the store. You're only choosing what's in the store, and you're not coming back, right? <laughs> so whatever choice you're going to make, you have to make your choice, and you have to be ready to deal with it, right? Same thing if it's like a Maybe it's someone's birthday, and they're like, we'll buy you a toy for your birthday, you know? You go to the store, you have whatever options are in the store, and that's it, right? <clears throat> that's going to breed a certain kind of culture, even when it comes to entertainment, right? For us, it was like, you want to watch some cartoons? You wake up 8 a.m. Saturday morning, you watch your cartoons. If the show's good, if the show's not good, if you didn't like it, none of it matters, because you caught your cartoons at 8 a.m. in the morning. And it's really important that you catch it because there's only one that's gonna come on for that week and everyone at school would have seen that one, right? <laughs> and if you didn't see that one, you're gonna go to school for the rest of the week and feel like a dummy, right? Because <laughs> you, you missed the Mario Brothers episode and like didn't see what Luigi did, you know? And that was the reality of your life. So you dealt with it in a different way. When the reality is, okay, I have 12 options on Amazon, I can pick whichever one I want, and then I can return it whenever I want, and then I'll just get the other one. It breeds a different kind of psychology, 
right? Now, when he says, as is stated in the proverb, why am I saying all of this? To get to the point of those who seek, those who look for a perfect friend remain without friends. Okay. I think one of the challenges that we have, even I'm hesitant sometimes when we talk about uh, in the majlis, we've had internal discussions. Because, you know, there was a time, it's not, I think it's still used, but it's not as prominently used as it was in a period, this whole safe space idea. And I was always a little bit hesitant to refer to things as safe spaces. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, if you have a community space, there's only so much you can do to make it safe. I don't want to give false advertising. Like, in the act of dealing with community, you are making a choice, and that choice is saying, I'm going to have to deal with a whole bunch of different people. Some of them I'm probably going to get along with, some of them I'm probably not going to get along with. You run the possibility of any random wild card behavior coming in, <laughs> like throwing things off, you know, someone might be having a bad day and someone told them they should come, but like they're not used to what we talk about and they get mad and start yelling at me because I'm white and stuff like that. Like it's happened before. So not in the Medjus, but in other places. <laughs> so, you know, you can't guarantee these things. So you don't want to tell people like you're going to, this is what it is. Right? Because community is a part of it is that there's going to be tension. Family is like that too, right? Like in the end of the day, we don't choose our parents and we don't choose our relatives. And they're still our relatives, and they're still our parents, and we have to figure out how we're going to navigate that. Not everyone maybe we're going to be super close with, but we have to figure out how we're going to navigate it. Friends maybe and spouses are a little bit different because usually, at least in our culture, we have some sort of... Um, this thing keeps going down. I'm going to have to hold it. Uh, usually in our culture, we have some sort of part to play in who we choose to be friends with and who we choose to marry. It's not always the case in our community, we know, but uh, we have some part in it, usually. And we recognize when we marry someone, like, we're not going to be on the same page on everything. We're not going to agree on everything. Hopefully those things we differ on are like the smaller things and not the bigger things. But the reality is that human beings are like this, right? And it's, it's actually, I find it a little bit amusing when we get married because you know, you grow up and you kind of... Hmm, should I say this? I think it's appropriate, contextually. It's like being white, you know? Like if you grow up and you're white, you don't really realize what that means. Until you have, until or, until you have some sort of experience in life that shows you that like, you're not really white anymore. The, the, the clearest of these examples is for white American Muslim women who convert and put on the hijab. This is the clearest of those examples. Because they go from being a certain thing in society and benefiting from it in different ways that they don't even realize it's happening, to like now you put on this thing in your head and you're not treated the same. You know, it, it just changes everything. And before that point, you didn't realize it. So oftentimes what happens in marriage is before we get married, we just kind of assume that the whole world functions on a very similar way that we function. <laughs> you know, like whatever order we have in our house about making beds or doing laundry or the kind of food that we eat, what we do with that food, how we set the table, how we clean up the table, when we do the dishes, when we don't do the dishes, do we use the dishwasher, do we not use the dishwasher? There's like a bunch of things that are in the details of everyday life 
that we don't really think about because they're just the same way. This is the house I grew up in. This is the way that it is. And then you get married and you realize like, oh, subhanAllah, <laughs> there's a lot of differences here. Like there's, there's a whole lot of other things people are doing. Like, like why'd they put their toothbrush on this shelf of the cabinet, you know? doesn't make any sense. Or, or which way do they put the toilet paper? You know, the, the never-ending uh, debate, which way do you put the toilet paper when you put the toilet paper on the roll? Like these are things that nobody thinks about until they see something else. Those are all kinds of like little differences that we have to essentially tolerate at some level. You know? And uh, friends, we have to tolerate our friends. Like we have to be able to get along. People always, they always ask like, uh, you know, why do we have to love people for the sake of Allah? And the simple answer to that is because you want to love more people. If we're just going to love people for the sake of ourselves, we've limited our pool. <laughs> like, okay, then they're going to have to fit all of these boxes. And if they don't fit all of those boxes, then we're not going to be able to have the same relationship. But if I'm going to learn how to love people for the sake of Allah, learn how to love people for who they are, to meet them where they are, and to accept them and try to like the good qualities they have to try to bring out the best in those good qualities and, and maybe the things that they could work on trying to strategically work on those things with them then I have a different relationship you know but if it's all going to be Amazon culture we're not going to have any family we're not going to have any community we're not going to have any friends we're going to be extremely lonely and what is one of the core characteristics of American society as it exists right now is that it's extremely lonely. Extremely lonely. You can't get along. People just can't, they can't get along with each other. If you talk to young people, you see a huge problem. Young people don't want to, a lot of young people, they don't want to get married. They're scared to get married. Because they're like, people are going to be, because you, like, there's a lot of risk involved, actually. There's, a, there's risk. Like, there's things, you cannot know them. And you will not know them until you live with this person. Right? And we don't do that before we get married, right? So, there's, an, there's risk involved. Even people in their careers, sometimes you see this. There's, there's some risk involved. And, and we become so, part of the Amazon culture is it makes us exceedingly risk averse. Okay, it makes us exceedingly risk averse. It's okay to be risk averse a little bit, but it makes us exceedingly risk averse. You know what fed into that more? What do you think fed into that more? Just so we can recognize where we're at. You know, without negativity, or it's not like to blame us. This is the reality of our experience. What increased that? What do you think? Hmm. Number, of options. Number of options. I'm talking about a big thing in the immediate, relatively immediate past. COVID. COVID really increased that. Right? Really increased that. And, and when you talk to people, you realize it. You realize like people are really anxious to come into public spaces more than they used to be. They weren't like that before, but then they got used to being alone. They got used to and like not dealing with that, you know? So we recognize all these things and realize be patient in your relationships with others and endure their mistreatment. Mistreatment, again, is these little things. I feel like Sheikh Sohail mentioned this a little bit last night for those who were at the event last night at MCC he was talking about how like it's nice that all these different imams came together to talk about something right and he's saying we have differences but that doesn't mean that our differences need to lead us to split off from each other 
So we don't want to split our relationships, but you know, we stay together. This is called mudara. It's an art. It's like, how do I let certain things go? And then how do I fix other things? How do I... And sometimes you don't fix things. You know, sometimes we have this problem too. We think that we can fix everyone. <laughs> sometimes we're not actually, you know, not everything's going to be fixed. And maybe it's not that important. Sometimes it is, but some things, maybe they're not that important. I could give you personal examples, but then that would be inappropriate. Um, you know, but people are different. So we have to, part of relationships and part of community is figuring out this art. How do we, as we said before, the Prophet said, and mu'min, ma'lafatun wa la khayra fi man la ya'laf wa la yu'laf. That the believer is easy to get along with, and there's no good in the one that does not befriend others and is not easy to befriend. Okay? They're both sides. It's for them to take in someone else, easy for them. And for someone else to get along with them, it's also easy for them. This is part of their character. This is part of the character of the believer. This is not like a matter of, oh, it's not my personality or something. Like, not everything we have to submit to. Some things we have to work. Like, okay. Some people we see that. They're just really easy to get along with. Some people it's harder. But I have to make some effort. Like, I, I want to be the kind of person people can get along with. And this is part of the way that the Sahaba were. Okay, so this is number 13. He says at the end, right, that uh, if it's wrong behavior, then it's not right to tolerate it. And it's necessary to work hard to dissuade people from their wrong behavior. Okay? So there's layers here. There's like major wrong things. And then there's lighter wrong things. And then there's things that just like, we don't agree with them per se, but they're not really wrong. So all of these are layers of things to consider. All right, number 14. Beautify your inside before your outside. Beautify your inside with dhikr and your outside with worship and morality. Again, beautify your inside before your outside. Beautify your inside with dhikr and your outside with worship and morality. Mulana Rumi, uh, he said, Jalaluddin Rumi. Uh, there's someone who wrote a good article, in case you didn't come across it, you might look for it online and find it. Uh, but now I forgot its name. Something along like, the Muslims reclaiming Rumi, or like people taking the Islam out of Rumi, you know? Like, it's very common for people to take the Islam out of Rumi. Uh, you know, he's just the best-selling poet in America, and he's like this mystical guy, you know? And yeah, of course, that was, that's part of Rumi's story. But Rumi was a proper scholar. Like, he, he wasn't just some guy who was writing some poetry. He was a proper scholar. He was known for his scholarship. He was someone who taught the different Islamic sciences and stuff like that. Who's, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, what he's doing is actually uh, very important. Um, Muslim civilizations, this is one of the things about having a long-standing civilization that shares language. So Rumi wrote in Persian, right? And what you have in Persian and what you have in Arabic also is a huge body of poetry that teaches you the most fundamental lessons about life and spirituality and stuff like that that people would memorize from their childhood. And generations of people would memorize it from their childhood. 
So the same poem that the child is studying and memorizing in like third grade would be the same one that their parent memorized and studied, and the same one that their grandparents memorized and studied. So they could go to school and learn like a couplet from Rumi and what it means and memorize it and be so beautiful and they love it and it has some sort of like educational story in it, some lesson in it, you know? And then they go home and they could sit down and have tea with their grandparents and talk to them about the same passage, right? Uh, they talk about this in the Indian subcontinent, that when the British came, part of what they did when they replaced all of the educational systems is they broke this lineage, right? So now when you break that, you have young kids who are coming and they're going to school and they're studying the British curriculum, right? And they're doing it in English and they're leaving out all of their tradition of poetry and these beautiful like spiritual uh, poems and things like that. And then they go home and they can't talk to their grandparents about it. And they can't talk to their parents even about it, right? So you create this. And then after that is who gets hired in all of the civil society and stuff like that were the people who went to those schools. So the British are very smart. They know exactly how to destroy a people. You know? One of the ways you destroy a people is through their education. It's through their education. And through uh, disconnecting them from their own language. You know? Disconnecting them from their language. So it's very common in the Arab countries now, and I'm always hesitant to say something because people get mad, but like, I'm not trying to make fun of your country. I'm gonna talk about Egypt, I love your country. I, can, I love it more than my own country, to be honest. Uh, so just know that from the get-go. But it's very common in Egypt. If you have any sort of money in Egypt, where do you go? You go to foreign language schools, right? You go to a British school, you go to a German school, you go to whatever, right? French schools sometimes, but I think like the most, if you really want to be somebody, you go to the British schools or the American schools, right? Because the English is king right now. And uh, so you go to those schools. You know what would happen in a lot of the times? We notice this. A lot of the times, the person goes to the school, they spend their whole life in this education, they grow up, their English is not so great and their Arabic is horrible. The thing about this miskeen person, they don't have any language that they're good in. Like they went through like an educational system, they don't have any language that they can actually connect to. The English is all foreigner stuff to them. Deep down inside, it's still foreigner stuff. Uh, whatever, you, you can try to be someone else as much as you can, you know? In the end of the day, you'll have times when you're reminded, like all of us right now, that you're not somebody else. In the end of the day, you're still Muslims and you're still going to be on the side of Palestine and you're still going to be marginalized. So don't forget who you are. Right? Don't give up your stuff for someone else's stuff just so you can be reminded later on that that wasn't yours in the first place. Okay? So same thing in these places. Someone will grow up and they realize at some point, like, SubhanAllah, I'm still Egyptian, but I don't speak the language of my country in the way that I should. Like, I, I, can, I can speak colloquial Egyptian, of course, like Egyptian Arabic, but actual Arabic that I can sit down and read poetry and read text and all this kind of stuff, it's not as good as it should be. Right? Some, I'm not saying this is the case for everyone. Some schools are better than others. Some teachers are better than others. People do stuff outside. Don't like, get caught up in the thing. But um, why am I saying all this? Because this is part of who we are in the language and Rumi. Rumi. 
Afghans call Rumi what? They don't call him Rumi. What do they call him? Huh? What do Afghans call Rumi? Not Rumi. Nobody? Some Afghans here. Maulana. What else? Maulana. Belkhi. Jalaluddin Belkhi. Jalaluddin Belkhi. Rumi was from Afghanistan. Rumi is an attribution to where he ended up living, right? Because even though his people were from one place, he ended up in exile. Not in exile, but they had to leave where they were from because of wars and things like that. And they went to the Ottoman lands. And when they went to the Ottoman lands, he became known as Rumi. Because that's the attribution to... It's interesting. Uh, the attribution for Europeans was Rumi. But what did it refer to? It referred to Istanbul. Right? Like in that historical reality. It referred to Istanbul. It referred to... Uh, the Byzantine Empire, essentially. And it remained that way. But the, he's Rumi because he lived under the Ottomans. Okay? Anyways, either appear as you are. So all to get to the point of what he said. Either appear as you are, or be as you appear. Either appear as you are, or be as you appear. Okay? One of the ways that Muslim poetry is misused is that people make it seem like it's all romance. It's, it's not romance. It's, it's love poetry about Allah and about the Prophet It uses the theme of romance because that's what is very tangible for regular people, right? Regular people understand the idea of love and falling in love and having this and that and so on. So they use that same language to talk about Allah and talk about the Prophet You see non-Muslims sometimes translate these things and make them seem like something they're not, you know? So be careful with that. The feta must be beautiful inside and outside, but real beauty is the beauty of the heart. For this reason, the feta prioritizes inner beauty over outer beauty. However, because the latter is easier, Many people focus on it and often neglect their inner beauty. It's so true. SubhanAllah. I'm going to read that again. The feta must be beautiful inside and outside, but real beauty is the beauty of the heart. For this reason, the feta prioritizes inner beauty over outer beauty. However, because the latter is easier, many people focus on it and often neglect their inner beauty. MashaAllah. That's a great sentence. Outer beauty is relatively easier, you know, and our culture prioritizes it. So it's like kind of, it's everything you see, especially in California. Like everyone, there's different trends on this and there's that and there's so on and everyone does these things. But the real beauty that matters is inner beauty. Of course, we should take care of our outer reality because that's part of what Allah has given us responsibility over. And it's part of the character of the Muslim to look well and to look decent and to um, be dignified and so on and so forth. But the, the real issue with that is what's happening internally. And the most beautiful person externally can become ugly very quickly. True? We've probably seen this. The most beautiful person, maybe they're whatever, they're so beautiful. I don't even know who that is these days, but whatever that is in people's heads, you can don't think about whoever you're trying to think about. Whoever this beautiful person is, they can do things that are so ugly. So ugly. Within five seconds, all of a sudden you look at them and you're like, this person is disgusting. You know, like they, 
they, they're signing off on this, they think that, whatever else it might be, you know? And then someone else, maybe they're not considered to be as beautiful as whatever people determine to be beautiful, right? Physically speaking. But when you deal with them and their character and who they are and the way that they look at people and the way that they think about people and the way that they try to help people and so on and so forth, you see that this person is just, they're so beautiful. Because that is the real thing. That is, that is, the, that is the real issue. Now, what makes the prophets the prophets? So that they have both of those, actually. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the way that He chooses the prophets, He recognizes this. There's an understanding. Human beings are attracted to beauty. And the most immediate attraction is to physical beauty. That's why spaces are important. Like beauty. That's why we take the time to put rugs on the floor every week and to put the thing in the background and to, to set up rooms in a particular way because it has a huge difference makes a huge difference. Like someone's ability to benefit from a, from a class is extremely connected to the space. And uh, I also, I always remember this experience we had one time, we had this like Qiyam program or something, you know? And we came into this room. Imagine the room is like half of this room split long ways. Okay, so if we were to take here, split the room in half, long ways, right? That's the room you're speaking in. It's almost impossible to give a good talk. Why? Because if you seat the speakers, it was myself and my wife, which makes it more harder, because you have to figure out how to accommodate equally at some level, men and women. If you're going to marginalize the women, it's easier. <laughs> Just from for it's, if, you're gonna, if you've chosen in your mind already We're going to marginalize the women We only care about the experience of the men Then it's easy You just sit the speaker in the front you, In the long way Sit the speaker here You put the men in front of the speaker They enjoy themselves You put the women in the back It sucks And you move on with your life Right? But that's not going to work If you're trying to accommodate both sides And you can't put them here long ways And put them side to side Because it's too narrow to put them side by side and if you sit the speaker on the long wall, then men are going to sit on one side and women are going to sit on the other side. And what do people always do? They sit against the wall, right? So all the guys are going to be all against that wall and all the girls are going to be all against this wall and the speaker is going to be sitting in the middle. This is how we were sitting. So literally you spent the whole talk like this. Talking this and then you go like this and there's nothing in the middle. <laughs> 120 degrees in the middle is empty. 30 degrees, 30 degrees. You know, it's a bad experience for everyone. So space matters. The experience of space, it matters. Uh, the physical reality of things matters. So Allah knows people are attracted to beautiful people. So the most beautiful person of all time, anytime you ask this question in, in communities, everyone always says Sayyidina Yusuf alayhi salam. It's the wrong answer. And Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Just because Sayyidina Yusuf was given half of beauty doesn't mean all of beauty wasn't given to Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's not, it, it's not like he got half, it's not he got half and the rest of the half was split between everyone in the world. It's like half of the beauty of the world, you could see it in him. All of the beauty in the world, you can see in the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Allah knows this, right? And he chooses that on purpose. But on top of that, the physical beauty of the Prophet ﷺ is nothing compared to the metaphysical beauty of the Prophet ﷺ. And the most important aspect of that is the depth of his love ﷺ for the people. 
deep, deep love for the people. And that's the most beautiful thing. That's the thing that you write movies about, that's the thing that you write songs about, what poetry is about, that's the thing that people tell stories about for the rest of, for 500 years, is the, the person who loved other people so much that it, it showed up everywhere, right? That's, that's the most beautiful thing. So the feta is required to pay attention to their inside as being more important than their outside. One of the other things that makes the inside harder is that you don't always see the changes as clearly. Okay? So with physical beauty, usually you can recognize the changes relatively quickly. You know? Maybe someone starts exercising, they go to the gym, they do whatever, like you see consequences. Maybe they put certain clothes on, they do their hair in a certain way, whatever else it might be that they do. You can, it's, the changes are very tangible. But maybe someone needed to improve on their patience. It's harder to tell, even for the person, right? Maybe for other people it might be easier, but for the person themselves, it's very hard to tell. You know, they're like, I've been trying to work on my patience and I feel like it hasn't changed. But it's probably changed. If someone's been doing that for a year, two years, they're probably more patient after two years than they were before they were, right? But that change is harder to, it's not as tangible. So it also makes it more difficult for people to do. Last point here is that there is a difference uh, not that he's making for me, last point for me. I believe this is a very important point for our culture and civilization. Is that there is a difference between something being beautiful and something being attractive or pretty. They're not the same thing. Okay. If you don't understand what I'm saying, uh, just try to think about it. Okay and sit on it a little bit. Much of what our culture appreciates is not actually beauty. Uh, it's attraction. And they're not the same. Because true beauty, uh, philosophically they say beauty is the splendor of truth. That if something is not true, it can't actually be beautiful. It can be attractive, it can be pretty, it can, be, it can look nice to you, but it's not actually beautiful by definition. Because in order for it to be beautiful, the essence has to be beautiful. And so, uh, like a lot of people that people think are beautiful, really aren't. Okay? But our problem is, we have to calibrate ourselves properly on what beauty is. And if I can make it a little bit more specific, I think that this is a huge challenge for young men. And it's very important that they think about it and that they fix it. Because otherwise they screw up their lives and the lives of everyone else. Because then the understanding of what's beautiful becomes some messed up understanding. And who's beautiful becomes some messed up understanding of who's beautiful. Who's beautiful. Who you want to marry and oh, I can't tell you how many times people have told me, well, you know, like, I want to marry such and such and these are the things that I want, but you know, I have to be attracted to them. And then like, First of all, you're not attractive, like objectively speaking, you know, and then, but you have to have like this most beautiful woman in the world. No, you, like, first of all, you shouldn't be thinking like that. Second of all, if you change your understanding of what beauty is, I'm not saying to completely throw it, again, physical beauty is a reality. I'm not change, like, exempting that from reality. 
But many of the things we consider to be physical beauty are not physical beauty. And when you're living with someone every single day, you're not looking at an Instagram picture. You're looking at an actual human being who's in front of you, who has their flaws and has their, has their positive parts and has like, you know, and if you can't learn to appreciate beauty that goes beyond some sort of filter, then it's really gonna mess up your life. Uh, and mashallah, you know, I believe that our community, uh, male and female, is filled with very beautiful people because we have people who care about really being beautiful internally. And that shines much brighter than anything else does. And we have to see that for what it is and accept that for what it is. And if our vision is tainted because we look at too many things that maybe we shouldn't look at, then we should stop eating sugar and see how our body reacts. You know, this is every, again, everything's the same, right? So everyone, people have probably tried this. You know? If you eat fast food all the time, you think it's okay. You stop eating fast food for like three or four months and you try to eat it again, you think it's disgusting. If you, you eat sugar all the time, you think sugar is fine. You cut sugar out for a few, few weeks, a couple months, you go through the withdrawals, the pain of it all, like it's an actual addiction. And you go through the pain and then it doesn't feel right anymore. Right? So if people are constantly affecting their standard of what beauty is by looking at things that they shouldn't be looking at, then they need to reset that. And the way to reset that is to stop looking at things. It's going to take some struggle, it's going to take some effort, and then I can recalibrate and make things right, inshallah. Allah give us tawfiq. Inner beauty is realized when we adorn our hearts with praiseworthy qualities such as beneficial knowledge, faith, dhikr, love, and sincerity. MashaAllah. Although these virtues are not visible, they are very valuable and can only be gained after a long moral training and inner struggle. In addition, it is necessary to make an effort to maintain these praiseworthy qualities after gaining them. MashaAllah. Good paragraph. Take struggle. I've said it before, one of my main concerns about our modern reality is that it doesn't lend to this internal struggle. It lends to making everything easy. And honestly, the biggest place that I fear for it is in education. Because I deal with kids every single day and their hearts give me hope. And their bodies give me despair. I'm, I'm just be really blunt. Their hearts give me hope because I look at them like subhanAllah, they're so beautiful, they're so amazing. They have such good hearts, like the good that they want for people, the love that they have, the happiness they have, all this kind of stuff. It's beautiful. But then I look at their body and I don't mean like their physical body. I mean part, of, part by the, I mean their biology, okay? And I have despair. Like I have actual despair. I have to go home and fight it. Because I can't get over this thing in my head where I'm like, if somebody can't listen to you for more than two seconds at any given time, how are they going to do anything useful with their entire existence? I, what are they going to do? I, if, if, and, and sometimes they're the ones who are asking the question. <laughs> like, like a student will ask me the question and I'll start answering the question and three seconds later I can see that their eyes are glazed over, like they're gone, they're somewhere else. Three seconds is too long. 
Well, why do women have to do this in Islam and men don't? You think I'm going to answer you in 2.63 seconds? I can't, that's not something that can be answered in two and a half seconds. Like it needs some sort of discipline. But everything in our existence is pushing people to not have discipline. Don't, don't have discipline on food, don't have discipline on money, don't have discipline on work, don't have discipline in, in education, don't have discipline in any of it. Just make it easy. And the more we can make it easy, the more we make it easy. And that's what we should do. You know? Even the seminary we have, I noticed in the seminary, uh, you know, alhamdulillah, people are trying, they're doing their best. It's too much for some people. I'm like, there's no possible way this could be made easier. Like, this has been, it, it's already totally watered down and not the way that I would want to do it. <laughs> but we're going to sit in front of these screens and record these things like Umar for the benefit of everyone else, inshallah, you know? But it can't be made any easier. It really can't be. You know, I'm cutting out huge amounts of content, cutting out all kinds of things, you know, trying to, it gets to be 10, 15 lectures. I start to feel like, okay, it's too long for them. Then I start thinking in my head, but like 15 recordings in the seminary, they're 20 to 30 minutes each. It's not even seven hours. Like there's a class, I'm not saying this for myself. There's a class we used to go to. We sit on the ground in front of the sheikh literally for seven hours. Like one day. <laughs> not like that was the whole course. We finished the course and like, alhamdulillah, everyone went home and they graduated. Mashallah. It wasn't that. It was like, this is one day of class. You sit in front, seven hours. You're hurt. Your legs hurt. Everything else hurts. The person's teaching. He's not entertaining you at all. There's zero entertainment. No change in volume, no change in tempo, no change in pace. <laughs> They're just teaching you, right? And what is, and it's a different philosophy. The philosophy is you want to learn, you have to give your, you have to develop in yourself what you need in order to learn. I can't do that for you. The American philosophy of education is, it's 100% on the teacher to figure out how to convince the student to pay attention. It's a failing philosophy, that's why it doesn't work. The philosophically at its base, it's wrong. How can, how can you explain to people that it's wrong and like get them to understand it? You know, it's hard. But my point in that was to say that that's like an internal thing that has to be um, developed, right? And our culture doesn't, it takes struggle. It takes struggle to learn how to have some patience. It takes struggle to overcome the difficulties that we have. It takes struggle to and in the end of the day, the things that people need to do for themselves internally, we can try to help them, and we can try to support them, and we can try to show them the way, right? But nobody can fight your battles for you. Like if, if you have issues, if I have issues inside myself that I have to work through, I have to work through them. And I think about it like a coach, right? Like the coach can come to the, come to the team, the coach will a team without a coach is going to be much different than a team with a coach, right? So the coach can come, tell them you should do this and you can practice this and you can do that and so and this person's going to go at this time. That's right. But who has to go out and play? It's not the coach, right? Every single player has to go out and actually play and, and do their thing and make their struggle, right? So there's certain things like outsourcing the fix is not going to fix it. Even we do that with our own selves. A lot of times we, it's someone else's fault. Everything is someone else's fault. It's true that sometimes a lot of things are other people's fault. It's true. But if we find ourselves blaming someone else for everything that's happening, 
This is a sign that there's an issue, right? And we should ask ourselves, okay, this thing I'm blaming someone else. Okay, I'm gonna keep tabs right now. Tomorrow something else happens, I blame someone else. Okay, keep tabs. Next thing, I blame someone, okay. Like, okay, I'm three for three now. A week passes, two weeks pass. Every time it's someone else, I have to say to myself, like, okay, what role do I have in all of this? Now, maybe, maybe it's shared. Maybe there's some stuff external, maybe there's some stuff internal, right? But every single person, that's why in, in our mission statement for the Medjlis, says we're committed to religious education, spiritual refinement, love, and service. Those are the foundations of what we're trying to do. Why? Because if we're gonna build community without knowledge, you have no guidepost. There's no coach. The knowledge is the coach in a sense. It tells you where to go, it gives you the guidelines. And if you have a community without spiritual refinement, then the players aren't playing. And this happens a lot in our community spaces. You know? Everyone comes and they feel good and they listen to something and stuff like that, but they're not actually playing. <laughs> like, they didn't go home and be like, wait a second, I need to look critically at myself on this issue and I need to improve this thing and that thing and so on. So we're not actually in the game. We just came for some entertainment. And, this, and the scholars actually talk about this. It might come up in the sun, Sunday tonight. They talk about this idea. Like they say that one of the deficiencies of the nefs is the person who cries when they, have, when they get reminded. But they give commentary, not because crying is the problem. Because some people, they come and they get themselves to cry and then they feel like they did what they needed to do and they go home and go on with their life. You understand what I'm saying? It was an emotional release, it wasn't a spiritual difference. It wasn't a spiritual experience, it was an emotional release. Sometimes we do that too, right? We, we get the emotional release, we feel a little bit better about ourselves, we go about our business. But was it actually what needed to get done? Was it actually like what uh, had to happen? It's a different question, you know? So sometimes we go to things just because they're entertaining. Sometimes we go to things because it makes us feel good. Sometimes we go, it's one of the big problems you have with sometimes people with teachers, right? Uh, the teacher's job is not to make you feel good all the time. <laughs> You know, again, if you think about a coach, and there's a line. They're not meant to abuse you either, all right? They're not meant to abuse you either. Uh, but you might have to run a little bit. You might be tired, and they might tell you, like, there might be times when they just don't massage your ego, right? So a lot of our conversations involve massaging the ego of the other person. Sometimes they might just not do it. And you leave afterwards, and you're like, yeah. I don't really feel so good about that. But you also realize that there's nothing happened that was wrong. They didn't say anything wrong, they didn't do anything wrong, they didn't treat you wrong, anything like that. They just didn't massage the ego. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> now I know what's wrong. What's wrong is that I didn't, I didn't get that. <laughs> Anyways, I'm off in La La Land right now. As for outer beauty, we have to finish this section. As for outer beauty, it is realized when we perform religious and moral acts that can be seen from the outside. Look how he defines it. Outer beauty is religious and moral acts that can be seen from the outside. Uh, it should be known, however, that the root of these acts is the heart. It is the beautiful states and qualities of the heart that culminate in moral actions. In other words, our heart is a tree and our actions are its fruits. Beautifying our hearts is a prerequisite for our external beauty. Worship and morality of someone whose heart is not purified and beautified cannot go beyond hypocrisy and showing off as illustrated in the following verse from the Qur'an Shame on those hypocrites who pray yet are unmindful of their prayers Those who only show off and refuse to give even the simplest of aid This is what surah? 
تنماعون الذين عن صلاتهم يساهون هذا ما بزكو You have to start from the beginning, otherwise they don't forget. It's fine. فويل للمصلين الذين هم عن صلاتهم ساهون الذين هم يراؤون ويمنعون المعون. Right? Those who it's interesting actually the Sahaba look how carefully they paid attention. They were really worried about this verse. الذين هم عن صلاتهم ساهون. They are the ones who on their salat. They are forgetful. Like regarding their salat, they are forgetful. So they came to the Prophet and they were worried. They said, Ya Rasulullah, like all of us have this issue a little bit. He said, and he basically guided them. There's a difference between an salatihim wa fi salatihim. There's a difference between someone who's forgetful in their salat and someone who's forgetful about their salat. So the characteristic of the of the hypocrite that's being talked about here is that they're forgetful about their salat in its entirety. Right? They just don't pray, they forget their salat, so on. Then, they, then there's something to pay. But if we have moments in our salat that we're uh, distracted or something, that's not necessarily what the verse is talking about. Anyways, the point here, uh, but look how carefully they're paying attention. Like, is this affecting me? Is, am I falling into this? Um, so he's making the point that beautifying the inside is the prerequisite for beautifying the outside. And that relates to what I was saying before, that there has to be an um, alignment, so to speak, of these things. Any questions or comments that anyone has? <coughs> when I come to the end, we'll make dua for Gaza, inshallah. Yes. That's a great question, mashallah. It's along the lines of when we make rule, when we make policies and rules and stuff in institutions, organizations and stuff like that, usually we're making the rule based on the exception. So we had said in the beginning that hard cases make bad law. So we have these general rules. There's usually exceptions to them, right? When we go to make policies and organizations and stuff, usually we're making it based on the exception. Sure. 
But it's necessary. Yeah. I think on an organizational level, the way that this can balance out is that the mission, the vision, the values, they provide the general direction of the organization. Okay? And the particular policies that have to be made are the exceptions to, in a sense, you could think about them like that, like they're the exceptions to that broad. Uh, vision, maybe you could say. And so, as what we have to try to do organizationally, this is an interesting, uh, it's a good question because it makes you think about it. So then what should we do if we have to enact a policy or we have to enforce a policy that is an exception to the overall vision? Then what do we do? We should probably enforce it while making mention of the general concept. Okay? So let's say... Um, you can't write that in dialogue. No, you do it when you talk to the person about it. Right? So you talk to them about... Say, for example, normally your organization has a general vision of being child-friendly. Okay? Or kid-friendly. You can have kids around, you can have children around. But like sometimes there's just maybe a kid who's like broken a certain rule too many times or they've every single time they come they're making a huge amount of noise or whatever else it might be. Then you have to like go to the person and talk to them and tell them, okay, no, as a general rule, we're this and this and this. But like when you talk about how can we balance this with the reality of what's happening with the situation, it's, me it's messy. But in the books of fiqh, they do that too. They'll have like, you have the, the principle in the law and then they explain the principle, they give you examples of all the, how it would normally be, and then they give you the exceptions. So you under, when you understand the exception, you understand it with the general rule, so that the spirit of it is not lost, you know? That's what comes to mind for me. Yeah, Tim. It's rare, yeah. So you can use that. You say, okay, like you can give the front line worker, okay, if you think some situation needs an exception, an exception, go ahead and make that exception. But you have, you know, whatever, like you know, two exceptions a day. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a way of balancing it. So now they're not gonna, it's not gonna get abused because it's not it, that guy. Like the system cannot be abused because there's only a, a limited amount of exceptions that can be made. But at the same time, it's flexible enough. The guy at the top doesn't have to think of every conceivable situation and mm. come up with it. Like the guy, now the guy who front end worker is actually empowered to use his ability and correctly recognize an exception that he needs. Yeah. So, and so he's not afraid that he's not going to be punished because he gets, he gets the exception. Mm. 
Yeah, it's interesting. SubhanAllah, very interesting. Yeah, in the, in the law they say, that the thing that is very rare, it doesn't get a rule. You know? And the idea is that when it comes, you deal with it. <laughs> you, you deal with it when it comes. You were going to say something? Sure. Human human beings and humans being together is filled with conflict and it's messy. But uh, it can be done. And that, that's, I mean, that's why good leadership is so rare also. Like the Prophet was able to bring people together who, I think it's fair to say, nobody else would have been able to bring them together. And he was able to keep them together. And sometimes, there are times, even with the Prophet them things almost fell apart, right? There are moments where like things almost fell apart. People are lining up to fight each other and stuff, and the Prophet them shows up and he's like, Like, you guys are reverting to what it was before, when I'm still with you, like I'm still alive with you and you're doing this, like you can't, you know, fix it. What are you doing, you know? But that's, that's community life. And that's why good leadership is so rare and it's, it's so special. And, uh, and part of that again is that, uh, and, and that is part of the casualty of leadership, is that you have to make decisions that some people are going to not like. And we can try to deal with that at some level and then sometimes we can't. So I'll give you a practical stop the recording example. Um, hold on, stop the live stream. Stop. Sometimes we can engage with it.